Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. If you guys want to turn to where we're going to be reading from today, we're mostly going to be in this Parsha, but I do want to go back to, or at least you hold your uh, spot in Numbers chapter 4, because we're going to be spending some time in Numbers chapter 4, and I want you to be able to read along. So, every week when I teach, I think like most pastors or most teachers or preachers, whatever, we always want to try to find a point of applicability Right? We always want to find a point, something from the Torah that we can give to you that you can apply to your life. Because kind of the thought is like, well, what good is it if it's not applicable right, to me today? If it's not relevant to me today? And you know what? I think sometimes we do a disservice when we do that. I think sometimes we, we are forced then to kind of twist and and cram the word into a sense of applicability that really the word never was intended to fit. And so I think sometimes what we need to do as not only teachers, but also as, as people that are trying to live after God and, and, and trying to love God the best way that we can, I think sometimes instead of trying to always find what's applicable in the scripture, sometimes we need to just study the scripture and just be bathed in its beauty. Be bathed in its complexity. Be awed by the things that we find in the word. By the, be, be, be reassured by the consistencies we find in the word. And the patterns and the connections. And, and if you never take something away. Or if you don't take something away from a Bible study session. A word study. A scripture study. A thematic study. And you don't take something away that you can apply directly. Just know that what is happening as we study and as we find these connections and as we put the scriptures together and we see these themes and these stories, what is happening is that your faith is being built up. Even if you don't come away with, I need to do this because the word says so, right? Let me give you a great example. I got three emails this week from places that I never signed up for. You ever get those? You're like, where am I? Where are these people finding my email address? They're paying somebody for it. I got three emails, and they both were dealing with what the Bible says about AI. Right? Here's the shortest sermon I'll ever teach. The title is, What Does the Bible Say About AI? Nothing. Let's go home. Right? The Bible doesn't say anything about AI. And I get this comes out of a good place because the Bible is our answer book, except it's not. And what the Bible is teaching us is wisdom. The Bible is not always teaching us what to think, but how to think. The Bible is not going to tell us how to think about AI. So how are we supposed to know what to think about AI or about any other thing that's out there? You have to use wisdom. You have to use wisdom, and that comes from studying Scripture. So, as we start off, let's establish a very important theme in this week's Parsha. What happens to Korah? 
He dies how? Well, yeah, he dies. The earth swallows him up, right? The earth swallows him up. Okay. So as we did last week and as you know, we've done for eons now, we look at scripture and we ask why, right? That should be one of the questions we ask. If a guy, well, actually 251 guys get swallowed by the earth because they did something that either hacked God or they, you know, that offended God or that was a sin or whatever it was. We, we need to know why. Why is the earth swallowing these people up, right? Why do we need to ask why? So we don't get swallowed, so don't get swallowed up, right? Exactly. And so we ask this question, why? Now, again, like last week, I'm sure we've all heard a gazillion sermons about Korok. Korok's rebellion, right? The idea that Korok rebelled against Moses and, you know, did all these things. Last week when we talked about the sin of the spies, we tried to drill down as to what it really was the sin of the spies. Because the sin of the spies was not their report of the land, the sin of this, they, they reported an accurate report of the land, right? We talked about how it was, how they reported it and to whom they reported it. Okay. Which seems like, ah, oh, that's kind of, that's kind of like really detailed and in the weeds. Yeah. But the weeds matter when you're dealing with holiness. Hashem tells all of his believers, all of his followers to be holy. Our number one top job, our number one profession as a follower of God is to work on being holy, to maintain the holiness that we have been given as a child of God. That is our A number one priority. All that we do, all of our days should be consumed with maintaining holiness, whatever that means. And so do the details matter? Yes, they absolutely matter. Did the details matter when five guys got onto a submersible and went two miles under the ocean? Did the details matter? Right, because what's at stake? Life is at stake. Now, there's a lot of opinions about, well, they're stupid for not going to... I don't want to get into the minutia of all the things. The fact is that five people lost their lives... And when you're talking about life, details matter. And when we deal with holiness, which is our identity, every detail matters. So what the spies may be, so what they didn't communicate their report correctly. Big deal. No, no, it is a big deal. So when we look at the story of Korok, we want to ask the same questions. What exactly was the sin of Korok? And, and how can we, or, or, or how can we, we go about finding a little bit better bearing so that we can use it in the development of wisdom for ourselves? So let me ask you this. What did Korok say that was so bad? What did Korok say that was so bad? Well, let's go to Numbers. Let's go to our Parsha this week. We're, we're going to jump off here, and then we're going to go back to Numbers 4. In chapter 16, verse 3, it says that they, Korok and his, his group, 
they gathered together against Moshe and against Aaron and said to them, it is too much for you. For the entire assembly, all of them are holy. And Hashem is among them. Which one of those things is wrong? Neither is wrong. All of B'nai Israel is holy. And God is, well, word we'll look at a little bit, betocham, among them, within them, right? The only thing we could maybe say, Korah, accuses Moses of exalting, Moses and Aaron, of exalting themselves over the congregation of Hashem, right? That crosses a line, potentially, okay? But the other two statements are, in fact, real and right. Why does Korah want to rebel? Is he the only one that believes that Moses has put him and Aaron have put themselves over the people? What's going on here with, with Korah? What's, what's his motivation? We're not told. We can surmise, but, you know, Moses doesn't even know. Moses goes to God and goes like, I don't know. What, what, is, what do I do here with this thing? Moses is not even sure. So let's do some background. Let's do some investigative work, right? Let's go back to Numbers chapter 4. And this is probably not going to end up at all like where you think it's going to end up. So let's go at Numbers chapter 4. And we're going to start in the first verse. So Numbers, so Numbers chapter 4 is all about this family called the Kohatites. Kohatites, Kohat and his family, right? So it says, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, take a census of the sons of Kohat from among the sons of Levi. So Moses, Aaron, and these Kohathites are all cousins, right? They're all fam, okay? According to their father's household from 30 years of age and up until 50 years of age, everyone who comes to the legion to perform the work in the tent of meeting. Now, that could be generally this tent, the, the tabernacle generally, but we're going to find out that the Kohathites are actually more specifically in this, they have to deal with this structure here, the, the Ohel Moed specifically, right? Verse 4, this is the work of the sons of Kohat, okay? In the tent of meeting, the most holy. So see, we're drawing down to where they're working. Okay. So in the tent of meeting, the most holy, which is here, right? Verse five, when the camp is to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come and take down the partition curtain and cover the ark of the testimony with it. This is called the parochet right here. This curtain that stands between the holy and the, and the, and the most holy. They take, when the tent is on the move, Aaron and his sons come and take down the parochet and they cover the ark with it. They wrap the ark with it, right? In verse 6, they shall place upon it a tachash skin. What does your translation say? Somebody say what? Badger, porpoise, right? <laughs> Was it fine leather? That's one of those words that we, we find. Or that's the word we find in the beginning um, instructions on building the tabernacle. 
And it's like, it ranges all the way from porpoise to badger skin. Like there's just a whole, the truth is today, experts don't know what this word means. It's some kind of leather. It's some kind of to, to keep moisture and stuff out. That's all we know. So Hebrew translations will just, just put takash in there instead of trying to translate it. Takash skin covering. Okay. So they have the parochet first is the first layer. Then this leather. And then spread a cloth entirely of turquoise wool and adjust its staves. So we're talking about the Ark of the Covenant, right? Which is called Aaron Kodesh. So they're to take the holy box and they are to wrap it in the parochet. And then after that, they put this leather around it and then they wrap it in a, a garment the Hebrew word is actually beged. Uh, it's uh, beged kalil techelet. Right? So beged is clothing. That's what beged is. It's a garment. Kalil is entirely techelet. Techelet. What is techelet? It's blue, right? It's this color. It's the color of the sky. And we'll talk about a little bit about this a little bit later. So picture this happening. When, when the tabernacle, when the nation of Israel is where they are, they're staying there for a little while. Aaron and Moses are the only ones that can, that can actually make it into the Holy of Holies as Moses goes to speak with Hashem there. Levi, uh, I'm sorry, Aaron's sons work in the holy place. The rest of Levi works in the rest of the tabernacle, right? That's those different different circles of Kedusha. And so during this time, Aaron and Moses get to do all the things. However, when the cloud begins to move or the pillar begins to move, all of a sudden it's Kohath and his, his group that his family that jumps into gear and we're going to see what exactly they do. So we got the ark and then it goes on to verse seven, uh, upon the table of showbread. Spread a cloth of turquoise wool, same thing, and place it upon the dishes, the spoons, the pillars, the shelving tubes, the constant bread shall remain on it. So you wrap the bread and the table and everything in this beged kalil techelet, this garment entirely of techelet. Okay? Um, they shall spread a cover of scarlet wool and cover it with a covering of takash skins and in place it staves. So the same kind of ideas we have at the ark. Then they shall take a cloth of turquoise wool and cover the menorah of illumination and its lamps and its tongs and its spoons and its vessels, its oils which they will minister to it. They shall place it and all its utensils into a covering of takash skins and place it on a pole upon the golden altar, which is the incense altar. Spread a cloth of turquoise, cover it with takash skins and place its staves, utensils uh, which they serve in the sanctuary. Um, again, uh, turquoise wool, takash skin. And then the poles, um, and then clear the ashes from the altar, and all these things, right? Verse 15, Aaron, is his, Aaron and his sons shall finish covering the holy and all the holy utensils when the camp journeys. Okay? So Kohat and his kids are not covering the Ark of the Covenant and all the things. Who's covering everything? Aaron and the priests, all right? It goes on to say, in verse 15, and then the sons of Kohat 
shall come to carry so they do not touch the sanctuary and die. These are the this these are the burdens of the sons of Kohat in the tent of meeting. I love the word burden, the translation burden there. Because we think, oh man, just to get to just to get to be even close to the menorah. Because it's a symbol of Jesus. Just to be close to it. The Torah calls it a burden. Why? Why would it call it a burden? Because what are these objects? Holy. Yeah, life is literally in the balance anytime you're in the sphere of these, of these objects, right? So we have this ark, the shulchan, the table, the menorah, all the things, right, are covered with, among other things, this tachash skin and this complete beged tekelil techelet, this complete garment of techelet. The sages tell us that Korah, he's got 250 men, and that they are all dressed in solid techelet. Korah dresses them all in solid techelet when he brings them to Moses during this rebellion thing. And he asks Moses a question. He says, we are commanded to wear tzitzit on the four corners of our garment, and we're to have a a thread of techelet in that tzitzit. This is Korach's setting up Moses for an entrapment. And Korach says, here, I've brought 250 princes of Israel. And instead of tzitzit, they're wearing solid techelet. So, Moses, are they still obligated to wear tzitzit? And Moses says, of course they are, because that's the commandment. In the Jewish, in the Jewish commentary, in the Jewish mind, there's this play about techelet. There's this really important function of the idea of techelet. We're going to see kind of where that, that leads us. So we know who is what Korach and what, what their job is, what Kohat and what their job is. There's a word that's really, really important here. Because we don't read Hebrew, we don't see so much of this stuff, right? But if we go back to chapter 4, verses 17, 17 through 20, excuse me. It says, Hashem spoke to Moshe saying, Do not let the tribe of the Kohathite, Kohathite families be cut off from among the Levites. Think about that phrase for a little bit. Hashem says to Moses and Aaron, look, I want you guys to protect the Kohite family so that they're not cut off from the nation of Israel. Why is the, what is the purpose of this commandment or this direction? Why would they be cut off from the nation of Israel? Any, any, any thoughts? Why tell Moses and Aaron, you have to protect the lives of the Kohathites? Could it be because they're dealing with ultra holy things and one slip up maybe could be the end of them? We already read where it says that they cannot touch the holy things or else what will happen? They'll die, right? So it's like God is telling Moses and Aaron, look, I, I, I don't want 
I don't know that they they can fully grasp the importance of the holiness that they're dealing with. So make sure that they do their jobs right. Make sure they are protected. And so it says in verse 18, Do not let the tribe of the Kohite families be cut off from the Levites. Thus you shall do for them so they shall live and not die. When they approach the Holy of Holies, Aaron and his sons shall come and assign them every man to his work and his burden. But they shall not come and look as the holy is inserted, lest they die. So we're already told that they can't touch or they'll die. Now we're being told, here's, here's another degree of protection. It's a fence, Right? Did you know that the Torah, we all blame the rabbis for putting fences around the commandments and making extra laws. Here, God is putting a fence around his own commandment. (laughs) So the rabbis that created all the fences are in really good company. They're acting like Hashem, right? And by the way, if you're a parent or if you love anybody in your life, you do the same thing as well. Sorry, we're not going to get off on that rant. But God puts a fence and says, not only are they not allowed to touch the holy things, they can't even see the tabernacle and the holy of holies. They can't even see it being taken apart and basically boxed up, right, for transport. There's a really cool word here in verse 20. It says, they shall not come and look at it as the holy is. What is the word you have there? Say it again. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you, Brother Ron. Inserted? Okay. What, does anybody have anything else? Okay. Dismantling. All right, dismantling, right? Yeah. Okay, here's, this is going to blow your mind. This word is bala in Hebrew. Bala, and if you look up bala, even in Strong's, if you look up in a lexicon, bala means to swallow. So what is what they are not allowed to see and what is happening when Aaron and his sons are covering the ark and the menorah and all that, the word used over and over and over and over for that covering is the word bala, to swallow. So what is happening here is that Aaron and his sons, they are using techelet, and Takash, but Techelet, they're using Techelet to swallow the articles of the holy place. So we say covered, and that's right, they're covering, but the mechanical definition, or, 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 and if you look that word up, the word cover never appears as an option for, for a definition, in Strong's at least, which is limited, but it's all swallow, to be swallowed, to swallow, to consume, all those types of words, right? So are you make are you you starting to kind of make these connections now? I mentioned that the midrash where, wherever the source is. Forgive me for not not knowing. It talks about Korah dressing all of his men in solid tehillah, and you can say, well, yeah, but that's made up. That's not. We don't know that that's really true because it's not in the Torah. But do you see where they got that idea from? Because what happens to Korah's and his men? They are completely balad. They are completely swallowed, just like the articles in the holy place are. And what are they covered in when they are swallowed? Beged Khalil Techelet. 
Isn't that cool? So, if nothing else, I think it's safe to say there is a whole heck of a lot more going in here than just Korah got his panties in a wad because he couldn't go into the Holy of Holies and minister, right? Yes, that might be the basis of his frustration, but my goodness, there is a ton, but it gets even better than that. Let's, let's just keep digging for a little bit, right? So both get swallowed. So the lesson here is, if we're going to deduce a lesson is, holiness equals swallowing. That's, if we were, if we were looking at it, you know, logically and factually, if we were graphing this out, the evidence would point to a connection between being holy and getting swallowed. Again, I don't know if any of this is applicable, but man, it sure is cool, in my opinion. Right? So Numbers chapter 16, back in our Parsha, it, we were, we're talking about um, chapter 16, and we go look at verse 26. Now, what is Korah, what are the Kohathites commanded? Two things that they're not commanded to do. Anybody remember we just talked about? They're not commanded to what? The holy things. Touch or, or see, Right? Numbers chapter 16, verse 26. And I'm sorry, guys, I didn't mention this. This is one of the weeks where the Hebrew and the English don't line up. So for those of you that read, that were confused, that was my fault. I check every week, and this week I didn't, and it was the week that they don't match. So I'm not sure that this, when I give you these references, are going to be in the right place because I'm reading from a Hebrew translation. Number 16, 26. This is Moses speaking to the assembly, and he says, Turn away now from the near the tents of these wicked men, this being Korak and his, his brood. He's, and turn away from them, and what? Do not touch anything of theirs. Why would he command them not to touch anything of, the, of, of Korak? What do we know? What do we know about ritual things? Holiness, cleanness, uncleanness, uncleanliness? What do we know about those things? They are contagious. Uncleanliness, tame, is contagious. We know that if a man has an emission at night and then he sits on a chair, that chair becomes tame. If a woman is in nida and sits on a couch, that couch is tame, right? It is, tame is contagious, but so is cleanliness, Likewise, sin is contagious, but so is holiness. And the beautiful picture, the beautiful story about the tabernacle is that holiness is more contagious and is able to overtake the contagion of sin. That's what the tabernacle, what the temple teaches us. Is that yes, sin might be contagious, 
However, God's holiness, the Shekinah, the dwelling presence of God, is more contagious and is more powerful and is over, is able to overtake the contagion of sin. One of our good friends um, messaged me yesterday. And... Um, They're using a facility for a community event, and the the the, the facility used to be occupied by a uh, a group of people that some people think are operating demonic stuff and and whatever conspiracy stuff. And I had to agree with her. I'm so glad we're past all that stuff. Even people, good Torah loving people in the Hebrew roots. I mean, I said this last week to somebody and they looked at me like I was crazy, but I know people or have known people that will not go to Walmart during Christmas season. You're like, what does that have to do with the price of rice in China? Well, there are Christmas trees up, see? And there's these Christmas, these Yule spirits, I guess. I'm trying to fill in the blanks. I don't know. That will attack you and overtake you. and I don't know. And this is a really, like, this is something I learned in the charismatic church. But if there is sin and activity, demonic activity, satanic activity, whatever, we've taught Christians to stay away from that stuff. Why? Why have we taught Christians to stay? Well, some of them may be too weak. Okay, then that's a failure on our part. If a Christian, a believer, is too weak to walk into a place that's full of demonic activity and the presence of God that is in them be stronger than whatever activity is there, then that's a problem on our part. We have not discipled and trained and taught them how to live in that fullness of what that is. And again, I say, that's real charismatic sounding. But the truth is that holiness is more contagious and is more powerful to overtake sin, demonic, evil spirits, whatever you fill in the blank. We should, we should bust the doors of those places open and say the, the Prince of Glory is here. Not that we are. You understand what I'm saying? We have, we have diminished so, and I'm not talking about kooky crazy, like go try to raise the dead. I'm not talking about stuff like that. I'm talking about when, when you're in a place and you are around people who have, who are full of chaos and have no peace and their lives are in shatters and whatever. And, and, and we have taught Christians to stay away from those people because they might drag you down. They might drag you down with them. We've taught our teenagers, drag, drag. If, if your teenagers are getting drugged down by the people they're hanging around, we're not doing a good job at teaching our teenagers who they really are. I say, as I have one that's fixing to turn 16 in about a month, I'll eat my words, I know, but it's a challenge to me too as a father to say our children are going to be in places that are not ideal. They're going to be in places that that contradict and, 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 and fight against what they are and who is inside of them. Have we built them up? Have we taught them how to tap into that identity? Because holiness is more contagious than sin. So they were not allowed to touch or see anything that had to do with Korok because it's contagious. They were not allowed to see the Kodesh, the holy, get swallowed because of its holiness. 
part of the fear here, I think, is that you have this, un, this incredibly holy place. And yet when it moves, it gets, it gets basically boxed up like a, like in a U-Haul. And so it diminish, it can diminish the sanctity of this place if you're not careful. The idea can be like, well, it's just stuff. Look, it just gets moved around like everything else. How is this, how are the spoons and the ladles and the spatulas and the shovels in this place different than some Yoko's tent out here that's got spoons and spatulas? How is it different? It's all the same. Because the holy is being taken down and boxed up to move, right? And so God is trying to protect the Kohathites against that idea. And I think it's something that, man, this is hard for me to talk about. It's something that we need to, we need to think about. Now, it's hard for me to talk about because I have a lot of baggage in this area. In that, the, the, the last several pastors that I worked for, served, and churches that I've been in, they have been the men of God, right? And they were untouchable. They said so themselves. They couldn't be questioned. They couldn't be challenged. You can't offer an opinion or advice. They are the final authority, full stop. And if, if you even approach crossing that line, then you are a heretic and you are a, and you, I mean, I was told my ministry, I would never fulfill my destiny, that God was going to pull his calling from my life and that, you know, I'd never preach again and that my whole life was going to be cursed now because I left one man of God, you know, just all this toxic stuff. And I know everybody doesn't have that, that baggage and I'm thankful that you don't. And if you don't be thankful, but I'm not the only one in this room even that has stories like that. And I know I'm not the only one out there of, of everybody out there that has stories like that. But the truth is that there are things even in our modern day life that are holier than others. There are people with different positions and statuses and different things that are in a different level because they have a greater responsibility. And I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about in general, in general. Listen, do I like Joe Biden? No. Do I think he's one of the biggest mess ups our country has ever had? Absolutely. But I have to be very, very careful about how I talk about him. Not because I think he's some kind of holy man of God, but because he carries a position, an office that is more responsible and more restrictive than mine. The truth is, if it was done correctly, the president, the congressman, all of our leaders, as you got higher up in elected office, your life and the ability for you to do things would become restricted because you're responsible at a higher level of government, just like this. Unfortunately, that's not how it works because we are corrupt. And you know what? A lot of Yeshua's ministry in his day and age was because his temple had become corrupt. And the people that were at the highest levels of leadership, religious leadership in Yeshua's day, instead of being more restricted because of their proximity to the holy, they were more corrupt and more underhanded. 
The way it works today is that the higher up an elected office you get, the more stuff you get away with. And it was the same thing in Yeshua's day in the religious circles. The, the, the higher up in the priesthood you got, the more you could get away with. Does that make sense? It's a dangerous, it's a dangerous game. It's a dangerous game. And in our congregations and our churches and the kingdom, we have to be, we have to be worried about people who get so famous, so influential that they're untouchable. Because how many times do we see ministers falling? How many, how many suicides have we seen from young pastors in the last five years? It seems like every few months there's a new 40 something year old pastor who has a beautiful family and a growing booming ministry, whatever, all of a sudden commit suicide. Because instead of holiness restricting us like it should, holiness has become a gateway for access. We're perverting holiness. Into something that's not intended to be. And then we go, well, God says be holy because I'm holy. And we have no idea what that means. That's just deep stuff that we can all think about. Okay? Now, there is a a sage named Nachmanides. He's called the Ramban. With an N, Ramban. He argues that the tabernacle, we're talking about its holiness, that the tabernacle... We talk about it as a recreation of the Garden of Eden. Ramban talks about it as a recreation of Sinai, which is, in my opinion, the same thing, right? They're all sacred space. But Ramban, Nagmanides, was really focused on this idea that the tabernacle is a mobile Sinai, right? Where God met with Moshe up on the mountain. Sinai is God made, right? God made the mountain. God appears. The tabernacle is man-made. Just keep that in mind, right? Yeah, you might go, yeah, that's obvious. Just keep that in mind. What was the nation of Israel told about Sinai when they were called to approach? Remember way back in the book of Shemot and Exodus, they heard the shofar, they saw the sounds, right? What were they told as they approached? Don't touch it. Put a boundary around the mountain. Don't touch it. If an animal runs up, what are you supposed to do? You shoot it with an arrow. Don't even get close. You see some connections here, right? Don't even touch or you'll die. So what keeps Korah and his family, the Kohathites, from dying when they touch the holy the holy ark and all the holy influence. What, what is the thing? What is the boundary? There was a boundary around Sinai. What is the boundary around the holy elements that keeps them from dying? Techelet. Techelet. Beged Khalil Techelet. A wool garment completely of Techelet. Techelet is this boundary between Korach, for Korach and the Kohathites, between life and death. It is the thing that allows them to transport these articles on their shoulders to be so close to these holy vessels and not die. A garment of techelet. So Kohath and his family, including Korah, their job is to protect the boundary. What is the boundary in Korah's? 
story, the boundary is techelet, garments of, it's this blue color. His job is to protect the boundary that protects between holiness and profane. So they're not just movers, right? Have any of you ever, as the Brits say, moved house? If Colin and Ann are still watching. I love the way the Brits say stuff. Like they say, go to hospital. Like there's a the there. The ho- no. Say, we're, you know, you're moving house. I love the way, I love the way they say something. So they're not just, they're not just people that move stuff, right? They are actually, in essence, guardians of the boundary. Really interesting. What is, what is Aaron, I'm sorry, what are Adam and Eve told to do in the garden? Guard. To guard. They are to guard the holy things. Korog, the Kohathites, Korog's family, they are guardians of the boundary between holy and profane. Just think about that for a minute. That's pretty profound. While we're not Levites, any of us, the New Testament makes some statements that puts those of us who believe in Yeshua at least we should be in the mindset that we are part of the people who should be guarding the boundaries between what's holy and what's not. All the more those of us who are learning and studying Torah and the temple should be really, really um, understanding and really, it should be really sobering to us about those boundary lines. So Kohath and Korach and their family, they are guardians between the sacred and they are to protect the boundary between the sacred and the profane. In the Talmud, in Tractate Minachot, there's a discussion, it's, there's a, 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 several chapters of discussion about tzitzit and about techelen, techelet. And in the William Davidson translation that I read, um, studied this week, it calls it the sky blue color. It doesn't say techelet or blue, it says a sky blue. One of the funny things, one of the first uh, things I learned from Joe Good was um, I used to wear uh, tzitzit and I would wear... Um, I would wear them different colors and all, you know, rainbow. And I had one, some of the match suits and I had all different, you know, Heather made them. They were beautiful and I, and I liked them. But um, when you say techelet, techelet doesn't mean blue, right? It's just like if I said, well, um, I, I want to paint a room and I want to paint it blue. What would your next question be? What shade of blue, Right. I want to be very specific about the color I want to paint my room. In the same way, techelet doesn't mean blue. It means a very specific color blue, this blue, which is sky blue. So in, in Tractate Minachot, in the Talmud, Babylonian Talmud, it says, it, it makes these, um, these connections. Techelet, it says, or this, this color, is similar to the sea. It's the color of the sea. The sea is sim- similar to the firmament or the sky, right? The sky is the floor of the throne of God's glory, okay? So the sea, the sky, the throne of God's glory. Um, Moses goes up on the mountain, right? And it says, some, most translations, I think King James says that the, it was like sapphire, or one of it's, it's, it's a color like that. No, what he saw was techelet. 
The throne of, of God's throne, the floor of God's throne room is Tehillet. Which in, a, in, the, in the real world, we're supposed to see as the sky. Right? Because remember to the ancient people, we live in a, in a, a sphere. Right? We live in a um, terrarium, like a snow globe. And to the ancient people, the sky is solid. And I know to many people today, or some people today, the sky is solid. I get it. But in the ancient world, the sky is solid. And God sits above the firmament. And so it's the throne. I, I, just, I, want, to, I want you to make these connections because all these things are similar language to talk about similar things. The thing about Tehelet, whether you're talking about the sky or the, the, the Beged Tehelet that we talked about, Tehelet touches both the supernatural and the natural. Tehelet is the, is the, is the, the boundary, is the bridge between the supernatural and the natural. It touches the, what we call the eternal and the temporal. And in the middle is Tehelet. Do you, you see that? Whether we're talking about the sky, what's above the sky? Well, God is above the sky, eternal. What's below the sky? Temporal. Whether you're talking about the, the articles of the tabernacle, what's inside the Tehelet is something that's holy and eternal. What's outside the Tehelet is mortality, Right? Who knows how you make Tehelet? Who knows where you get this dye from? Anybody? Yeah, it's called a Murex snail. Um, a little crustacean found only in the land of Israel, honestly. And in, in, uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's referred to as a Hilazon. A Hilazon snail. Um, and there's some interesting things about the Hilazon. So the Hilazon, I, I didn't have, I'm sorry, I didn't get pictures. I should have. Um, the Hilazon, if you look up pictures of it, it's if it's in the sand, you can't tell, you can't see it. It is completely camouflaged. And so when they harvest them, they have to dig for them because you can't just go like, oh, look, there's a chilazon, there's a murex snail. It is so well camouflaged. The shell of it is that beige sand color and then it has dark speckles on it. It looks like little pebbles and rocks and stuff. If you look it up online, you, you can see what I mean. It's completely camouflaged when it's in the sand. The sand. The dirt, the earth. God made man out of the dust of the ground. We talked in our Genesis series about that not being an elemental composition, but that talking about man's mortality, man's frailty. Frailty, dust, sand. But once you harvest that murex snail and you process it, and you get the dye from within it, it makes Tehelet, which looks like the sky or the sea. Do you see the two different elements in the Murek, in the Hilazon? The two elements in this snail, by the way, which is an unclean, right? <laughs> it's unclean for temple purposes. But in this one organism, we have the very identity of Tehelet. We have the mortality, the, the earthy, the dirt, the frailty. And we also have the royal, supernatural, eternal holiness in one organism. Tehelet is the transition between the transcendent and the dirt of our world. It covers the ark, 
right? Aron Kodesh. It allows us to approach the transition between holiness and mortality and not die. Tehillah protects us. It is the most holy thing that Korach and his family could touch. We said it before, but Korach dresses up these 250 guys in solid Tehillah. What is he trying to say? We're all holy. We're all holy, Moshe. You're not the most, you and Aaron are not the holiest above us. You're not all, you're not the ones that should be able to tell us what to do. We're all holy. The problem is, holiness gets swallowed. You could argue that Moses and Aaron, they're holy. You could argue that they've already been swallowed by holiness. How you say that? Because Moses and Aaron lived the most restricted lives in B'nai Israel. Holiness has already swallowed them. They have been stripped of all of their, anything that is not of God, they have been stripped of. And the sages talk about Moses almost in a, in a God-like fashion, right? Much of the way we think about Yeshua. It, they are stri- Was Yeshua swallowed by holiness? Absolutely. He had no desire of his own. He had no word of his own. He said, I don't say anything unless the Father speaks, right? That is being swallowed by holiness. That is bala, being consumed by holiness. And the thing that we need to remember is that holiness is going to consume us one way or the other. Holiness is going to consume us. It's going to swallow us and refine us into the image of Messiah, the image of God, or it's going to swallow us and it's going to kill us. Those are the two sides of holiness. 